Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. On today's episode, Danny talks with Pekka Pesinen, Secretary General of Copa Cogeca, and Daniel Katz, Vice President of Environmental Programs at the Overbrook Foundation, about how their companies can help support farmers during the coronavirus outbreak. With points of view from the European Union and farmer groups around the world, Pessinen and Katz try to push for policy and financial support of diverse farmers' interests. Enjoy the show. Today, I get to chat with Pekka Pessinen, the Secretary General of Copa Cogeca, the largest lobbying group for farmers and farmers' cooperatives in the European Union. The organization represents the interests of over 70 agriculture groups. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Pekka, from Brussels. I know it's getting into evening there, and you probably want to go home, so I'm really glad to see you. Um, before we begin, I just want to make sure that you and your colleagues and all of your family are, are sort of safe and healthy during this crazy time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in Brussels. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So before we begin, I'm hoping you can sort of give a, a short overview of what Copa Cogeca does and, and, and who you represent in, in Europe. We represent uh, national farmers' organizations all across the EU27 now. We still have very strong links with the NFU National Farmers Union in UK. And we are here for the EU institutions. It's very much about European Commission, European uh, Council of Ministers, and European Parliament. And uh, together with our member organizations, we lobby for European farmers, which is about 10 million strong um, group of farmers together with other operators in the food chain, all the way to 40 million people plus in agri-food chain, and our 22,000 agricultural cooperatives. And uh, if you make a comparison, we, we, we work slightly differently than in the U.S. We are pan-European uh, organization. Mm-hmm. We are supranational uh, that organization that lobbies for its members on a binding legislation of the EU. So in this respect, we are somewhat different than the federal organizations in, in the U.S., and we are uh-huh. quite unique internationally also. Absolutely. And so can you describe the farmers who you're representing? Is it, is it small farmers, medium-sized farmers, big farmers, or all three? All of them. Um, in, in all member states, we have a huge range of farmers and uh, their the conditions are different, their sizes are different, their production methods, even within the same sectors, uh, they are very much different. They have also, which is a very characteristic for, for, for the European Union agriculture, is that the, the historic background is different. And for instance, Central Eastern European member states still co- have to cope with the with the, um, let's say, uh, the land reforms that were imposed on them in the 1940s. Mm. And the consequences mm-hmm. we, we still see in the EU policymaking. And that's just an observation. This is, we don't have a political orientation whatsoever. I think the, the common denominator for our policy action is that we try to support, uh, sustain our agricultural activities and our farmers as much as possible. And uh, it's really important for us also to involve cooperatives in this respect. Because mm-hmm. that means that we we bring the, the agricultural goods increasingly to the market according to the market conditions and in in re, in relation to the consumer preference, 
And in this respect, corporates are very important. I have very strong corporate background myself from my native Finland, in, mainly in dairy industry. But then uh, we, we certainly believe that the farmers joining forces, the marketplace would make a huge difference for themselves and their families. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the support for farmers that you provide and farmers cooperatives, I can imagine that's only become more and more important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you describe sort of what your your strategy has been to help farmers during this really critical time? Well, the first lesson actually that we learned from this crisis was the importance of the single market, the EU internal market that operates without without borders. And uh, the, the, the negative consequences or the negative experiences we had are very much linked with that. Some member states uh, had to make decisions, uh, for instance, on uh, free movement of people. They had mm-hmm. to limit that, restrict. And even, they didn't, even if they didn't target uh, trade or agricultural trade, the consequence for agricultural trade was visibly see, seen immediately. So that the borders, uh, border controls put in place actually slowed down the, the trade and the consequences was felt all across the EU immediately. And what kind of consequences? What, what kind of consequences are we talking about? One very, very new, like a, a new phenomenon that we haven't, haven't experienced so far was movement, free movement to labor. And uh-huh. uh, unfortunately, we just entered this crisis in, in the very beginning of our seasons, uh, right. agricultural seasons, especially for fruit and veg. And uh, we experienced a lot of difficulties in having access to seasonal labor force within the EU borders and also with third countries. And uh, this became a very concrete, real problem in many member states, and especially in sectors such as fruit and vegetable, but increasingly other sectors too. How big is the seasonal labor force for the EU? How many people are we talking about? We have millions of people that work part-time or some time during the, the season right. in European agriculture. But then we tend to say that we, uh, roughly speaking, have almost 1 million uh, annual labor unit, if I may use the, the, the measurement in that ma- sense, that mm-hmm. equivalent to people that work full-time for a year. Um, but then this means that we have millions of people that work part of the year. So it may be like three months a year, and we have several million people that do this, let's say, every once a year for a local farm or a, a, to a farm in a neighboring country. And so so it's a, it's, it's a steep involvement of uh, other societal groups to European agriculture, but in this case, on the seasonal basis. Yeah, and the, the, I mean, I think we're all beginning to realize how important that those seasonal laborers are in the food system. I think it's something that you know a lot of uh, folks in the United States have not quite understood until now how important those seasonal uh, workers are and how important they are to making sure that we're all fed. Y- you mentioned this, uh, you know, the slow down trade, and I'm wondering if that has led to uh, more food loss and food waste because farmers are not able to distribute their products? Well, we certainly had that, and we tried to fight that as much as we can because it, it, it really is not in the interest of the farming community to, to have food losses because we have made investment into it. They had a lot mm-hmm. of work put into it, and if we lose that by some changes in the marketplace or the consumer behavior, we are, of course, trying to do our very best to offset that, use these this biomass, for instance, for other purposes. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, we experienced, especially in the fruit of veg, 
when when we didn't have the labor force to harvest certain certain early early vegetables, for instance, uh, asparagus typically, uh, we we certainly experienced this that we actually didn't have the means to to harvest this this crop that we were planning to sell in the first place. Then we had also, which is actually probably the biggest single change that that we had all across the EU, was the closure of the horeca sector, hotels, restaurants, and catering, mm-hmm. and that consequently meant that 10 to 15% in some member states of the food supply was lost on a short-term basis because right. there were no outlets for these volumes anymore. And, uh, and and these same produce couldn't be easily sold in the retla- retail outlets because the, the package size was different or the sure. composition was the product was different or they didn't have the labeling. Mm-hmm. And and some of the cash and carry outlets actually came up with initiatives to open the doors to consumers in order to get get rid or get uh, sell these produce that they couldn't otherwise get rid of. And and it was so strange that in with the same wholesalers we may have had a situation where on, the, on one part of the business we ha- they were flooded by products that they couldn't sell because right. the restaurants were closed, and on the other side of the same business. They they experienced some shortages in certain product groups that that the consumers started buying from the retail outlets, and then of course that led to certain losses. And of course we regret that this has taken place, but sure. there wasn't that much to th- that we could have done. And what are you hearing from your members? What are their biggest concerns right now? Well, I think it's very much linked with the with the market itself, and. Uh, the, the, the changes in the consum- uh, consumption patterns have led to a situation that we have lost a big part of the value added, the high price end of the scale. Mm-hmm. Typically, beef, um, high-value cuts, steaks go unsold because we have most of the restaurants closed. Usually, sure. you don't eat that many steaks at home. And uh, so, therefore, the, the economic return from the marketplace is somewhat less than before. And this is also on the basis of certain, let's say, high-end product of such as specialized cheeses or processed mm-hmm. products that have been once again used in especially in catering. Also, high-quality wine has suffered a bit. Um, at least some of our producers, uh, our members, have reported that they have have lost some uh, high-quality wine markets that they 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 simply don't have the same right. volumes anymore. And going together with the recent, for instance, trade restrictions with the U.S., that is really hampering our economic situation uh, within the sector. And therefore, we have been calling for the European Commission to come up with the market management measures that, that still exist in the legislation. Uh-huh. And what kind of measures would those be? Well, it depends on the sector. And uh, some sectors have uh, what we call private storage aid, that the operators will be paid certain, um, s- a small amount of money per month uh, per ton uh, to compensate the, the storing costs they may have. Okay. Uh, then, of course, we have uh, issues such as um, public intervention. For instance, sectors such as milk, we have still public intervention open from March to September. And uh, during this period, the, the European Commission basically is obliged to buy um, uh, volumes into public intervention if the price levels go below certain levels. Mm-hmm. And uh, but those levels are so detrimental to most most in this case dairy producers that we certainly don't don't want to go that far. And we would like to let's say use other means like promotional measures, 
a, a mm. private storage aid or some other aspects. In the past, we used to export, but this is no longer available in the way that we, we had it in the past. Right, right. Which governments do you think are handling the situation for farmers the best right now? You mean in the, in the EU? In the EU, yeah. Well, by definition, the European Commission and European institutions are in charge of the EU agricultural uh, sector and the market management. But of course, we have certain measures that now the Commission itself has given to the member states to help farming communities, and especially some of the businesses. And I would, I would like to draw, um, as, an, as an example, it's, it's still very much in the, in, in the process, so we can't say what's going to happen at the end. But I know that, for instance, the Dutch and the Belgian governments have been let's say, in talks with their respective farming organizations in order to intervene to certain businesses that have experienced hardship. And one of the, one of the sectors that, strangely enough, has also come forward and ha has been impacted by this has been flowers and ornamentals. And uh, even though you can't talk about foodstuffs in this respect uh, directly, but then indirectly, for instance, nurseries are inf affected. So that, for instance, a vegetable sector would require some plants for, for, for their season, and we need to sustain these, these businesses so mm -hmm. that they can actually make a contribution, at least partially, to foodstuff sectors too. So... We have seen some initiatives in member states, but you could imagine that in the in the times uh, of uh, COVID-19 and especially with the general economic downturn, it's been increasingly difficult for the member states to intervene. And so, therefore, we have called for European institutions to recognize that agriculture is a strategically important sector, more or less in the same line with the U.S. federal government has said. Sure. You have a different political system in the U.S., but then... We certainly took notice that uh, the, the Trump administration declared a rescue package for the U.S. agriculture. And we certainly would hope that European Union would do, if not exactly the same, but would recognize the importance of agriculture sector as a part of, of the recovery and how we should come out of the crisis from market market point of view and then also for future investment for agriculture. Sure. I mean, there's no... Uh greater essential worker than a farmer, I think, during this time. So the, the more that can be done to support farmers and, and help them do their jobs better and, and during this crisis, I mean, I think the better off we'll all be. There's no question about that. You know, we, we've been talking in the United States about how uh, small and medium-sized farmers have really had to pivot and change a lot of their practices. You know, farmers markets have been closed. Um, you know, they don't have the distribution that you mentioned before to restaurants that they had before. So they're doing a lot of online marketing. They're um, developing more CSAs to deliver food directly to people. Do you see that happening with some of your smaller and medium-sized uh, members? Well, we, we have seen some development, but um, we have to keep in mind that we are talking about relatively uh, inexpensive um, produce and grocery goods. And um, infrastructure for this kind of large-scale sales through the internet simply doesn't exist to the to the mm -hmm. extent that we would would need now. So, therefore, I think it's it's fair to say that that we need to make sure that we we function as normal as possible with the existing means. And then, parallel to that, in addition to that, of course, we are very much interested in developing. Uh, other means, and of course, the European Commission also has pointed out that we need to make an assessment how how the food chain works. 
and uh, we have been actively involved with that with the with other stakeholders. And uh, one particular item that you mentioned was actually the farmers markets. And um, we were very happy to see that at least partially the French government lifted their restrictions to farmers mm. market because in particular that affected some of the local producers that use that as an outlet to their sales. And uh, you could imagine once again, if these same producers were to be go through their supermarket chains, uh, it would be another hurdle for them. Even though Absolutely. we know that some of the supermarkets actually came to rescue and they, they helped these farmers. But the, these, it's more to do with the change in the capacities that exist to enable these producers to sell their produce through other means and channels rather than mm-hmm. if they want it. Of course, they want, want to do that. And we, we certainly wouldn't sure. like to enable them to do that. But, but it, can, it can be challenging because of the missing infrastructure. Absolutely. Do you think the cooperatives that you're working with are coming out better than sort of the the individual farmers uh, who belong to different organizations but who are not part of a cooperative? There's a fundamental difference between between the cooperatives and the at least some of the private side businesses. And this is that the cooperatives are committed to the members because mm-hmm. they are owned by the same farmers. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, when it comes to crisis management and especially collection of agricultural goods, by definition, the cooperatives are supposed to do this. Even if, if the times are tough, they are supposed to act upon on the on the on the volumes that their producers, mm-hmm. their their members, their owners actually produce. And in this respect, I think we saw a very good example in the UK dairy market, where some of the private uh, operators simply informed uh, our members members in, in in UK that unfortunately we cannot collect your milk. And this would be unheard of in a, in any right. cooperative. Because then if, if your own corporate doesn't come and collect your milk, they better have a good excuse. And so, of course, it may be some physical means that they cannot do that. But as, uh, in principle, if you say that, well, sorry, there's no market. We are not going to come and pick, you, pick your produce up. Uh, this is not an option for, an, for a corporate. You know, this is mm-hmm. also something that we see as an added value for, for our members, corporate members, that they can rely on, on the support of the wider, bigger entity that they are right. a member of. And we see a great value of that. Well, and it lessens the risk, especially during times like this. It makes, you know, when people are working together, they can, you know, manage that risk collectively. You know, this might be sort of a, a, a negative question, but I, I do think it's worth asking. What's your biggest fear right now for the European farming sector? Well, if, if you look at the short term, we are quite worried about the economic development during the crisis itself, because this is in the minds of most farmers. Of course, we are looking into the longer-term perspective too, but then if you go to any farming community, they are struggling to make the ends meet. They are really fighting to keep the supply of foodstuffs to the, to the process, to the processors, to the retail, to the consumers. And we do this together with other partners in the value chain. And we are very committed to this. So that there's no doubt in our minds that that what would be the importance of the food security European style. Usually we have too much to eat, at least I I eat too much. But then the reality is that when we had this crisis, European consumers went to the supermarkets and they bought 
pasta, flour, eggs, sugar, UHT milk, and some basic commodities also in fruit and veg. And uh, the shelves went empty. Right. And toilet paper. And which is really strange in the sense that in a, in a fairly high living standard communities, like here in Belgium, sure. we had this reaction. And so the consumers expect that we fulfill the, the food security needs for, for themselves, even in a high, high living standard societies. Mm -hmm. And this is what we are committed to deliver. And so this is the short term concern that can we actually sustain this? Can we survive this economically? Can we get the support from the union? Can we get the, the proper action in place for the short-term sure. needs? Then the second, which is more strategic, which we have seen already coming for a number of years, is the, the, the employment or getting young farmers, new entrants right. to the sector. Because the Commissioner, uh, Commission for Agriculture or European Commission, European institutions may, may put out declarations that we need to have younger generation, we need to enhance the, the new entrants. But if they are not there, what can we do? And so, therefore, our message to the EU decision makers is that you need to make agriculture economically viable so that the, our young, our brilliant minds can actually make the investment. And this is the message that we have tried to put across to the European Commission, especially Commissioner in charge of agriculture, Mr. Wojciechowski, that please, whatever you do, just make sure that the decisions are in line with the market so that the young farmers and the farmers can make the investment, irrespective of whether it is about sustainable agriculture, more sustainable production in, in future. But it has to be in line with the market realities because the tax man is not going to pay more for agriculture in, in Western world. And, and yeah. this seems to be very difficult to get across. That can we employ modern technologies, innovative technologies? Sometimes they can be controversial in order to make us more resilient, more sustainable, and especially when it comes to the new investment that everybody's talking about so much. Well, and if you're talking about, you know, making sure that young farmers are <clears throat> supported and that they're, you know, they want to be in farming, a lot of technologies can help them do that. And, you know, not just the controversial ones that I think you're referring to, but, you know, more digital uh, use of technology, more digital technologies that farmers can use, uh, better ways to communicate, better ways to, <clears throat> to market better ways to get information about weather and, and uh, uh, prices and markets. Those are all things that would help young farmers want to become part of the farming sector and the agriculture sector and, and keep them involved. I think it's about a combination of the factors that you just, just mentioned. It's, it's very rarely that we only have a one single solution, for, for the, especially for the sustainability and economics. It's a combination of various factors. You have to have a superior infrastructure to support you in terms of marketing channels, the expertise from your partners, and then importantly, you get the data, you get the information. And so like, this is why European farming community as, as Coban Kozaka, we have been quite recently active with other stakeholders to come up with a standard for a guideline for the data sharing. Mm -hmm. And this is a crucially important element because if, if a young farmer goes into an investment plan, so the first thing the bank manager will most probably ask him or, or increasingly her is right. that, and so what are you going to sell? How are you going to make your living? Mm -hmm. And so the information from the consumer market and also going back to the consumer market to show the commitment that the consumers would rely on. 
And that's why we are very much interested in technologies such as blockchain, because it would Absolutely. provide us a reliable tool for the young farmers or the farmers in general, because in, increasingly we also have to take note that older people like myself, we may actually be interested in getting into the right. business. And so therefore, it would be really important that we could rely on the information from the consumers. And ideally, if the consumers are interested in committing themselves, they could make the, the necessary investment. And this is really crucially important for us. It may also be some of the very physical technologies, like can I, can I reduce my depe dependency on, so on some particular input? Mm -hmm. And you know what is in the, in the popular media now to talk about. And it's, it's very much about, for instance, chemical substances. Mm -hmm. But then it's also that how can I combat the, the phenomena behind this? How can I combat pests and disease that increasingly due to climatic changes are going to right. pestering, pester my crops or my livestock? And so therefore, uh, the common denominator for these investments and new thinking is that you have to have a combination of factors. Mm -hmm. And that's why we are quite confident that, that we in European agriculture sector, we, we, we actually have fairly good image even here in Europe, because the surveys that we have had in the European Commission, they always come, come on top that agriculture actually enjoys wide support of the society. And we are quite convinced that after this crisis, uh, this support would be at least as, as strong. But then it would be also that, can we demonstrate further progress? Can we show sure. this closeness to the consumer mm. concerns? And to a certain extent, we can do this also internationally, now external trade. And uh, mm. we are quite, quite happy to see this developing. And I think in addition to the combination of factors, we also see that diversification of European agriculture in, in, many, in, in many sense is actually crucially important for us. Absolutely. We can actually deliver whatever the consumers are interested. Mm -hmm. we, we don't ask any further questions. We try to deliver what they want. Mm -hmm. I get it. I mean, consumers rule, and if you know, if if they're supportive of of small and and medium scale farmers as well as large farmers, then they can make a lot of impact. I, I think it's good, uh, you know, that you brought up to to remember that farmers aren't just facing COVID nineteen right now. They're they're facing all of the problems that they were facing before, whether it's climate related or you know trade restrictions or trade regulations that have you know um, you know either devastated some of their their production or you know i'm talking about farmers all over the world so I, I think it's you know after this crisis those farmers will still be facing the same challenges and they're going to continue to need support from you know the european union and uh, our you know the u.s government the you know the governments all over the world why I, you know I think there's a tendency for governments to have, you know, to have forgotten agriculture and to have forgotten farmers. Do you think that this crisis will sort of force them to think more strategically about investing in farmers? In fact, that question has been put to me several times in the past 13 years that I've been working for the organization Sector General. And I've always said that that we don't see this this situation correcting itself until we have a crisis. And I mean mm -hmm. true crisis. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty for us is that the farming community, no farming community around the world can uh, advocate for a crisis. And now we have this. Just It came from outside the union, from outside the, the conventional, let's say, food chain. It had nothing to do mm -hmm. with the let's say, food production, at least from the European perspective, at least according to the information that we, we have now. 
and then the farming community is the first casualty of the of the crisis Absolutely. so we cannot advocate for this but i'm quite convinced that now the lessons that we learn are very much linked with the with the interdependencies within the eu single market also internationally mm-hmm. and importantly how can we develop this further to what extent can we tolerate this dependency because it's I'm, i don't want to black paint anybody in particular but then sure. we are very much dependent on certain inputs um on on our human lives for instance pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. for instance some of the antibiotics come almost exclusively from for instance china and the question is that the chinese may do a good job well i'm not asking mr trump but then we'll, we'll we we may say that they may do a good job and that's why they actually supply certain certain pharmaceuticals for instance antibiotics for human health already not to mention veterinary pharmace- pharmaceuticals sure. the question is that how much do we want to be dependent on these one suppliers or single suppliers in the future how much should we build our own kind of capacities how much are we prepared to pay for it mm-hmm. and this is mm-hmm. the crucial element here especially here in europe because irrespective of this what we call added value and the consumers are increasing, increasingly interested in the thing is that they always go back to the price and so therefore how can we maintain our competitive competitiveness in a new situation where we need to take a look into how we produce our foodstuffs and right. are we how dependent are we on some single items it is linked with the food chain and how long the food chain would be but i'm absolutely convinced that european farmers are professional people they are trained increasingly they have education and they can relate to these to these things but fundamentally what are we going to learn from these these crises in order to mm-hmm. be better prepared for the next crisis that obviously right. eventually will be there i hope not and we will do everything in our powers to stop it uh for instance animal disease we we are very motivated to make sure that we wouldn't have these the spread of the disease any further mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. the reality is that we need to be pre- prepared for this we need to prevent and this prevention is a crucially important thing when when we talk about how to prepare ourselves for the next round absolutely certainly lots of lessons to be learned from covid-19 for you know crises that we'll be facing in the future whether it's climate change or the spread of zoonotic diseases etc Um you know I I want to end on sort of a hopeful note and I know you get to work with so many sort of amazing uh farmers and farmers unions and farmers groups and cooperatives who is inspiring you the most right now who is sort of keeping you going during this critical time Well um th- this is as you could imagine this is always a bit sensitive issue to, <laughs> to ask for multinational um organization or um european sure. organization like like ours but i have to on the serious note i have to give credit and i have to show my respect to the to the italian and the spanish farming communities and especially to start with with the north italy, right. italy farming communities right. that were really hard hit by the by the covid-19 that was devastating to these farming families that with the probably huge losses of their loved ones it res- it seriously restricted their their action their livelihoods their lives and some of them actually endured the the, the ultimate loss losing their Absolutely. own lives or their family lives this really makes my heart heart 
let's say, break. And um, my 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 appreciation, my respect would go to 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 my Italian and Spanish Spanish farmers that also have had a hard time in their livelihoods. But then uh, I'm absolutely convinced that like like Italian farmers in the farming community in the past, they will they will come on top of this this crisis. But it would require investment, hard work, and uh, we will certainly support our members in doing that. Yes, I, I agree. Farmers, if nothing else, are resilient and they will persevere in Spain and in Italy and elsewhere in the world. I think that was a, a wonderful note to end on. Uh, you can find more information at copacojeca.eu. Uh, and if you want more information, we'll also have uh, Pekka's bio and other information about uh, his organizations on our website, foodtank.com. Thanks so much uh, for joining me today, Peck. I really appreciate your insight into the European context. I hope everyone uh, will join me back here at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when I'll be interviewing Jeff Gordonier from Esquire magazine. Thank you so much, Pekas. Please stay well. Thank you very much. Stay healthy and eat European good food. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Today, I get to chat with Daniel Katz, the Vice President of Environment Programs at the Overbrook Foundation, which is based in New York City. And he is also the board chair of the Rainforest Alliance, an organization he co-founded and served as CEO and president. Overbrook provides grants to organizations working towards conservation, biodiversity, and sustainable consumer practices. And the Rainforest Alliance focuses on sustainability and conservation using its network and certification process to help food system actors around the world. I have to say that Daniel has become uh, someone very, very instrumental in my life and that he is a you know, just have been a great uh, mentor and friend to Food Tank as it has Overbrook. They've been our, our biggest and greatest supporter since really the very beginning. He is also no BS um, and one of those people who doesn't really let me get away with much, which is what I appreciate about him. Um, Daniel, before we start, I just want to make sure everything's okay with you and your family uh, out there in Sag Harbor. Um, yeah, we're, we're fine. Um, you know, I, I, I feel this tremendous sense of both gratitude and guilt, right? Sure. I've got gratitude that we, we, we have a place to be. We get to, uh, to walk our dogs and jog around the neighborhood. And I also have a lot of guilt because we, uh, you know, we've got plenty of food. We can get food. We have fresh air. Sure. And, uh, you know, my heart breaks for all those who don't. And these are tough times. So, um, you know, these are times where we where we take, uh, you know, every piece of toilet paper with a whole new sense of gratitude. It's true. It's true. Yeah, that gratitude and the guilt, I think a lot of us are experiencing that. And it's, it's you know, such an emotional time. And with all the anxiety so many of us feel, it's, it's, it's tough to sort of figure out your emotions. Um, one of the things that I've been so worried about, you know, is, is not only the loss of, of so many restaurants and, and food establishments that, you know, are in my neighborhood or, you know, places that I, I depend on um, to commune or, you know, have social time with friends and family. You know, the restaurants have, have, have closed because they've had to to keep people safe. Um, and, and that's been, you know, a devastating loss to local economies. But I'm also worried, you know, about the nonprofit world. And there are so many nonprofits that, you know, uh, either Food Tank, 
uh, partners with or that we admire, that we try to amplify their work or that I give money to or that others on our staff give money to. What's the situation for them right now? I mean, how I, I feel like they're in a similar uh, position as, as so many restaurants that they don't know, you know, even if they're, you know, everyone's working from home, they don't know how long they'll survive. Yeah, it's 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 really tough. Um, well, broadly speaking, uh, nonprofits are uh, going to do very badly. Um, the La Piana Consulting, it's a, it's a consulting firm on the West Coast. They are doing surveys of nonprofit organizations, and they are finding that universally organizations are hurting. Yeah. Our organizations are really, really hurting. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been in touch with uh, several dozen uh, environmental organizations that the Overbrook Foundation supports, and there, there really is a range of pain. Um, yeah. In it, you know the smaller organizations that have that try to apply for the CARES Act, and that's a big opportunity cost that they don't have great banking relationships or right. they aren't as important to banks are having a very difficult time. Those yeah. organizations are losing people, furloughing people. They will, there will be a major contraction in the uh, nonprofit field. The environmental field, there's some 22,000 organizations. I believe that there will be, and, and maybe it will be okay, a major contraction. Maybe we'll see some creativity where uh, key people from organizations will align together and there'll be one or yeah. two bigger back ends that can support these organizations. Well, I feel like that's something you and I have talked about before, the need for more partnerships and collaborations in the nonprofit world instead of, you know, everyone sort of reinventing the wheel or doing, you know, whatever little thing over here and whatever little thing over here. So, you know, is do you think, you know, there's there's an opportunity for that or is it is it kind of too late because COVID has already happened? Yeah, I think people would say there's always an opportunity in a crisis if you can figure out how to manage your way through it. Um, you know, we're going to see we're going to see a test of how well a lot of the nonprofits are going to be doing. The environmental groups are going to be doing this mm -hmm. week as we you know share Earth Week. There were so many activities planned. It, there right. there was supposed to be the largest march you know ever among uh, people in in the United States, and that is now being converted. To, a vir to virtual activities. Right. So we don't know how well those groups are going to do. And once we come out of it, we know that small dollar donors are, are pulling back donations. Foundations right. have lost a lot of money within their endowments. And some foundations are doubling down if they can and giving out more money. So it's going right. to be a hodgepodge of activities. And, and I think the organizations that were uh, had were managing their money really well before, were able to sock money away, had good reserves, will probably weather the storm. And a lot of them, a lot of groups won't be able to. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the role for philanthropic organizations and foundations now during this time then? If, if they're unable to give, they do have a lot of sort of human power in terms of providing advice. You know, I, I'm interested you know, when, when you're talking to your grantees, what kind of advice are you giving them? Well, uh, so you're right. So our foundation, we're, you know, it's important for us to make sure that the groups that we are currently supporting are as healthy as they can be. We are offering support. I'm, I, you know, do executive coaching and have offered uh, pro bono executive coaching to 
our, our grantees and others, you know, if that's helpful at all. Uh, I think the advice that we're giving, you know, it's, it's terrible, but it's hoard cash. Yeah. If you have money, you're going to have to find a way to hang on to it. Sure. Um, the other piece of advice I think is really important is to do as much scenario planning as you can. If you can, if you can make a low, medium, high budget, if you can make a budget for 2020 and then, but you know, don't think that if you're just because you make it through 2020, you are in the clear because 2021 right. is when the pain is really going to come out. That is at least what we're hearing from the groups that we work with. They have already locked in their budgets for 2020. Right. 2021 becomes a very big question mark. 2022, who knows? Maybe we'll come out of this. You know, I've, I've lived through at the rainforest. And I lived through uh, a number of economic downturns and we, sure. and we were able to grow through each of them. Because sustainability continues to be a really important issue. Absolutely. And people recognize that. And so does food. So the question is, uh, how, do you, how can you take advantage in a, in a healthy and authentic way right now so that you can help people, foundations, donors, understand that the work that you're doing ties into uh, making this planet better in the long term post-pandemic? Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's what, you know, that's what certainly what Food Tank is trying to figure out. And, and, and by having these conversations online, that's part of it. But, you know, what, what's the plan post COVID? You know, we've been talking to so many experts, everyone from Chef Dan Barber to former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. And they're all calling for, you know, the, the, the idea that we can't go back to the way things were, that the food system that, you know, we have right now and that we had pre-pandemic, that's not going to work in, in over the long run. So, you know, what other things should we be thinking about that won't look like they did, you know, in, in January or February post-pandemic? Yeah. So what you're saying is we need to flatten the climate crisis curve. We need to recognize who are essential workers, the, the coffee farmers, the tea right. pluckers, all the people who provide the services that we never see. They are invisible to us. And these are really big challenges because they're broken systems. And the best I can do to think about um, any one solution, and I think that everything starts with that one solution, and that is voting in November. Right. Right. We have to, um, you know, we are a 501c3 organization. So I would say that um, uh, that we need to have an administration that is going to be as pro-environment, pro-people, pro-changing um, the system as much as possible. And I think we have to recognize that that's, that goes all the way down from the, from the Supreme Court to all the different courts, that if we want to, if we want to rebuild uh, a world that is greener and healthier and safer, it's going to start with having an administration that shares that same vision. Yeah, I mean, we need some real leadership here and we we haven't had it. We didn't have it before the pandemic. We, we don't have it now. And I think, you know, what we need is a mass movement of, of people who understand that, you know, it's 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 food is certainly important. Frontline workers are important. Uh, the environment is important. And, and you know, we need to rally. I, I was talking to somebody earlier today and, you know, there's always this debate sort of in the food movement world if there really is a food movement. 
And I, I'm hoping that one of the things that I see as an opportunity is to build, you know, the, the food and environment and, and agricultural communities as a mass political movement who can really vote for change and push for change in, in more powerful ways than, than we've been able to in the past. Right. Uh, I totally agree with you. So I've been encouraging the groups that we uh, work with to uh, put out that message that you're saying everywhere, you know, on the bottom of every email, you can continue to do your work. But unless we have a lot of voter registration, a lot of election protection, and a major get out the vote campaign to ensure that the people's wishes who share our vision of a of a, a cleaner planet um, mm -hmm. and a safer and healthier planet, um, they, everyone's going to need to get together, align around that movement of change. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the other things that I'm concerned about is, you know, that we're so focused on this emergency and it is an emergency and we, we have to think of it that way. But we, I don't want, you know, folks to forget about the things that you care about, like, you know, uh, making sure that the rainforest is preserved, that making sure that, you know, we we find ways to mitigate and adapt to and prevent further damage from climate change, that we we still focus on poverty alleviation and and reducing, you know, diet related diseases. How do we I mean, things were bad right before all this happened and these problems were enormous before this all happened. How do we how do we sort of change people's mindsets to remember that we still need to focus on those things and get through this crisis? Yeah. So I think you're talking a lot about planetary health, right? It's the people and the planet. I mean, I, I have to be honest. Um, I haven't eaten this much pasta in, in one period of time. <laughs> right. Cookies. Me neither. <laughs> it's just not part of my regular diet. But I, I think we have to give ourselves a break around that. And then we need to look. Change happens in in one of two ways, really. The 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 kind of change that um, happens on an individual level. You want to learn a foreign language. You want to stop biting your fingernails. You want to eat healthier. You do it, you know, moment by moment, right. day by day, right? It's like learning. It's like learning a foreign language. You develop a fluency for it. Yeah. Uh, and, and and you practice it. And so these are the kinds of changes that it's a muscle that we need to work on now. And it's very hard to think, how am I going to improve myself during a pandemic? <laughs> but I've been right. trying to figure that out. I mean, you know, I can pick out one thing. I'm, I'm, you know, working on my jogging a little bit, which is not so great, the distance and time. But sure. the kind of change that happens are, are shocks to the system. You know, yeah. someone's, somebody dies, um, we, a terrible storm, a pandemic, things that we cannot change, but we have to adapt around. And the more that we as individuals practice those smaller changes and yeah. work on them, the better we are going to be at managing when those big shocks to the system occur. So, Absolutely. so I know it's hard, but it's going to be, you're going to have to look inside yourself and look across the table at the person that you've been looking at for the last five weeks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right. No, I mean, it's good. And it's, it, you're right, it is a muscle and it needs to be exercised. And we need to, you know, add these sort of new things to our repertoire of, of daily tasks to really figure this out. 
You know, you mentioned um, when we started talking before the live cast that this, you know, we might look on, uh, uh, you know, in the future on this as sort of a blip in time, you know, or it could be the life changing event for us all. Um, Any, I mean, it's, it's, you know, hard to predict these things, but, you know, you've had some experience, you said, with, you know, economic shocks and, and getting through them. If it's a blip, that's great, right? But if it's if it's a moment in time in the same way that, you know, 9-11 or World War II, where, wh- how do we, we get through it? You mentioned the political situation before. That's something we just really need to keep focusing on, right? The political situation is something that we can strive for, work toward. It's coming. Is, you know, and we need to make sure that it happens on, on that date, on election day, n- under no circumstances do we let anything get in the way of that. And then as we look upon, at, at this event in time, if you've lost a loved one, if you've been, you know, pained yourself, you're going to remember it. But over time, right, time heals all wounds in some way. Yeah. For my kids, it's, this is a, a major event, the major event of their lifetime so far. There may be more. It, with a climate crisis on hand, who knows how many more so we have to somehow take this moment and turn it into what can be um a a more aggressive way to look at a green new deal or more environmentally friendly and socially desirable jobs will we be able to in 20 years go back look back and say yep that i remember that in the same way that i remember that terrible storm or when you know, you lost a loved one decades ago. It'll be in your heart. You will feel it. You will remember it, but you will have moved on. What we need to figure out ways that we cannot make this um, everything. Right. Right. Everything, right. All encompassing, overtaking all of us from here on in. Yeah, I, I agree. And the urgency of, of you know, COVID-19 is is certainly there, but there are all the other things that we we discussed that still needs, you know, to be worked on, whether it's climate change or um, making sure that essential workers, the folks who've been invisible to us for so long, get, you know, the proper health care that they need, that they get the proper, uh, you know, living wages that they need, that they are supported, that they are respected and honored. Do you, you know, I, I, do you think that's possible that I, I'm, what I have anxiety about is. Dan, you're talking to Utah. You're looking, you look much more at the food system. You're an expert in that. Do you think it's possible? Do you think I, there's I'm a way that we can turn essential workers into, into people who are more greatly respected and well-paid? Yeah. I mean, when you have, I, I hope so. I don't know because what, what I am have very anxious about right now is that, you know, when this is over, whether it's six months, eight months, 18 months from now, that we sort of go back to this, the way things were. And even though, you know, you and so many other experts are saying that that's probably, you know, the things are going to change and this is our moment. I, I don't know if we have, you know, let's say that the same political powers are, are still there when this is all over. I don't see how we can do that, how we can make these essential workers essential, like treat them like they are essential people. And, and that's what scares me about all this. I know there are so many great organizations like Restaurant Opportunity Center United and One Fair Wage who are working so hard on this. And I, I, I know that that sort of energy is there, but I think people sometimes are, you know, 
they forget easily once something is over. And I don't want them to forget the people who are driving their food to the grocery store, who are stocking shelves, who are, you know, the cashiers, who are wait staff, et cetera. What about if you flip it around? You know, a friend of mine said he's having a hard time realizing that he's not essential. Mm. He might make a lot of money, but he is <laughs> not essential. Like, I don't feel it. I'm, I'm having a hard time with it. What sure. else, I'm thinking, what else can I do? How else can I help uh, during this period of time as a non-essential worker? And right, the, right. right. Uh, gosh, I feel um, superfluous. And yep. the thing I think that I can help most with is uh, helping nonprofit leaders and nonprofit organizations stay in business and do well, and then try and do what I can to ensure that whatever our democracy has been and is continues right. by making sure that there's a fair election in November. And it and all I, comes back to that. I think right now, I think at least as a non-essential worker, right? Yeah. It was not um, helping save lives every day or delivering food or growing the food. I think for people like me, um, it, the best way to be able to help is going to be uh, ensuring a, a place for our democracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the more we can continue to amplify all of the good work that's being done. I mean, you're so good at that. Food Tank tries to, to, to be good at that. What, you know, you've been talking a lot about the, the national election, and that is, you know, very, very important and urgent at this point. But what about, you know, our local elections and school boards? And do you think those are equally as, as uh, important to be thinking about uh, as well? Incredibly important. The Overbrook Foundation um, created a democracy fund, and we supported a number of progressive organizations in the state of Wisconsin um, prior to this uh, current debacle of an election that was allowed to occur by the Supreme Court, but the outcomes turned out to be pretty good. And we, we, we're really proud of the organizations that, uh, that we supported. And, you know, people literally are, 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 they risk their lives to vote. And this is on a state level. And, right. they, and they were, you know, it was at a local level as well, city, state level. And there are more elections like that. I think every election counts. And I think that um, as as individuals, we have to we have to use the the right that we have that we get to to vote, and not just that. We need to ensure that everybody has a right to vote. From if they're mail in election mail in ballots, or making sure that as many ballot booths are open around the country, right. it's a right. It's a, it's you know, it, and it's it's not a wrong. And I think there are those. People who would who would like to see a smaller number of people vote, and that that needs to change. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know during this crisis, there's this tendency to feel so overwhelmed and so sort of um, you know you want to disengage and you don't want to listen to the news. But now that's more important than ever. We all have to become more engaged, and we have to you know, support those organizations and, and, you know, leaders who we think can change the way things are. And, and it's, again, it's really important to vote um, uh, in, in every election you can, because who we choose really matters. Who we choose. And, and it's not even just who we choose, because I think that people um, 
sometimes they don't vote when they don't get the candidate who they most wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, you we're we need to look at what kind of world do we want to live in and what kind of world are we living in now? And when you vote, are you voting for the kind of world that you feel is necessary, that you feel is a, is, uh, will allow change to occur? Right. Or, or will it become more entrenched in a system that is, uh, that is operating in a way that you don't believe in? Right. And, and you, you know, so you, so you have to compromise, right? We are all going to have to compromise. I remember uh, there's some quote that says, we'd all like to vote for the best person, but they're never a candidate. So <laughs> right, right. You need to figure out um, who's close right. and, and, and how to, and, you know, maybe I, I might not have said the same, this same thing um, a few years ago. I, sure. I, maybe I'm right. But I, but I believe that now. I do too. I was saying something very different in 2016 than I, than I am now. And I was thinking very differently. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't want to turn off anyone who is, you know, doesn't have the same political views that I do, but I think that we are in a, a, a real leadership crisis and in a real crisis about our democracy and whether it will exist after this is over. And, and so that's what really, I think, um, weighs on me and I, I, I know weighs on you and so many other people. I can tell you that um, so many environmental regulations that were created over the past several decades have been overturned in the, in the last three years. So, and foreign aid that supports governments that are doing conservation work. For me, the environment, conservation, species conservation, climate, all these things that I've, I've worked on for the last 30 some years yeah. they're being knocked off one by one. Right. And I know that uh, they are directly tied and I don't typically work on, on politics, but they are directly tied to uh, governments. I, mm -hmm. if you, I mean, you can look at Brazil, for, for example, President right. Bolsonaro in Brazil is, is, has it, he has his mindset on, on negatively impacting the lives of indigenous communities on um, upending, you know, national parks, uh, forested regions, and trying to turn them into development zones, uh, not caring about the forest fires that are right. impacting local, have impacting both Brazil and regions all around the world. This is really a travesty, and, yeah. I, and you know, the the it's very dangerous for conservationists in Brazil right now. But I like to think that. Uh, international pressure can impact uh, that government's political points of view. And we're going to need to figure out, we need to be active. We need to get loud. Absolutely. We need to get louder for sure. You know, and, and so much of the, you know, the, the environmental regulations that you mentioned before and the foreign aid regulation or foreign aid assistance programs, those were bipartisan, you know, um, achievements in, in, in uh, administration's past. So the fact that they've been upended so quickly, that, that is not what democracy means. They, sh they should remain in place no matter who is in power. And so our, our, you know, regulations about worker health, the environment, conservation, those should always be things that, you know, a, a true democracy believes in. So even like with cafe standards that was recently uh, changed, you know, most of the car companies or many of the car companies said, don't do this. 
let we want to have we want to strive right. for a more energy efficient car and you know when you have the car companies themselves saying we need to do more to prevent the climate crisis from growing and still that is a problem absolutely absolutely it, it's it's a little it, it it's more insane than it should be during what is already a crazy time um you, before we, I ask you the final question, um, I want to make sure people know how to learn more about your work. They can go to overbrook.org. They can certainly go to rainforestalliance.org, and I hope they'll support the Rainforest Alliance. It's one of the best organizations out there um, promoting conservation of, of, you know, the lungs of the planet. So please support rainforestalliance.org. So, so Daniel, you, you mentioned vote. You want us to get loud. You want us to uh, promote democracy. What, what are what what are your final thoughts? I mean, I think I'm most interested in hearing who who who's inspiring you, who's making you feel hopeful during what is such a chaotic time. Well, well, I was going to add, if you can, you should financially support organizations like Food Tank and others. The organizations that you like in a good day, you should like even more in a bad day, right? I think, and I know, you know. Um, Small dollar donors, you know, $3, $2, $5, those donations really do add up and make a difference. And, you know, you can, the same dollars will go in, a, in, a, in an election year, support organizations working on that. You know, I think what I am, I'm, I'm most inspired by young people. I continue to be inspired by young people who are getting out there doing this work and they're saying, this is not going to stop us. Maybe we are not going to be marching outside, but we are going to find ways to reach new people inside uh, uh overbrook foundation proudly supports sunrise and they have the sunrise um like a, a university or an online program and and the numbers i think are have the, of people who are have joining or want to join since this all started is staggering so we know there are a lot more people who want to get involved and a lot more young people and they're looking for a way and they're and they're aching to do more. And, you know, I, again, I feel bad that uh, all these decades later, I thought for sure I would have saved the rainforest, you know, <laughs> wouldn't be a climate crisis. So I feel like, you know, I failed, but I believe that, you know, the, that young people are, are, are there. Life is a continuum and they're going to keep up this fight. And I, and, and I'm, you know, I'd like to support them in as many ways as I can. That, that's amazing. And you did not fail. You built an incredible foundation. And you're right. There are so many young people craving to, to be part of a movement and, and do incredible work. So um, they, Sunrise is such a great organization, so they should get in touch. Thanks so much, Daniel. You've made me feel incredibly um, hopeful, a little bit angry, which I like. I think anger can be really useful during this time. Um, and I just appreciate you and, and the work of Overbrook and the Rainforest Alliance so much. So thank you. I hope you continue to stay well. Um, a reminder that this uh, episode will also appear on Food Tank's podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me back at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow when I'll be talking to Dana Gunders, a food waste warrior with Refed. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Danny. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.